All right, with that, we're going to jump into the message because I got a lot on my heart today that I want to give to you, and you want to go eat lunch before like 2 o'clock, right? Amen. Amen. Me too. So we're going to get started. That's, that helps. Listen, I'm telling you, there's times I'm up here, and I get hungry, and I'm like, we need to wrap this thing up because I'm getting hungry, okay? So if you get hungry, just start waving at me every now and then, and I might just spur it along, especially if you were going to buy me lunch afterwards. I would move a lot faster then, so that's just a plug. Nobody laughed at that. I thought I'd get a laugh. Not even like a sympathy laugh. Man, that hurts. I thought we were all family. All right, we're in a series called How Do I? How Do I? And in our series, we are talking about different things that we approach in life where we ask the question, how do I do this? There's a lot of things in life that we try to figure out. And with the advent of the internet, a lot of times we can figure things out. Google has been wonderful, as we have talked about. YouTube can teach you to do just about anything. But there's certain aspects of life, certain nuances of life that it seems like people don't have the answer to for us. How do I know the will of God? That was the first week that we talked about. And a lot of times we as Christians are questioning, God, what is your will for my life? And that seems to be a question that we wrestle with that YouTube or Google cannot help us with. That we talked about last week, we said, how do we get unstrapped financially? It seems like a lot of us go from paycheck to paycheck and we think, man, as fast as I can make the money, it disappears. What what are the principles that God has for my life to help me overcome this just tight financial budget that I have? And this week, we're going to look at a very important topic, and that is this. How do I keep my marriage from drifting? How do I keep my marriage from drifting? It's a very commonly known fact that human beings cannot walk a straight line. We are incapable of walking in one direction without veering to the right or veering to the left. Under your own ability and your own means, if you take off walking with no visual or auditory cues, you will very quickly start to walk in circles, very tight circles, actually. How many of you have ever seen the show Mythbusters? Did you ever watch that show when it was on TV? Yeah, several of you have. That used to be one of my favorite shows, and they actually tried to test this. They thought that they could figure out a way to walk in a straight line. And so what they did was they went to a field. It was a big, flat, open field. There was nothing in the field, um, and there was a tree probably 100, 200 yards away. And so they looked at that tree. They put on a blindfold, and they started walking. They have a, a GPS tracker uh, on them so they could see exactly where they walked, and they started walking. And what very quickly happened is, is they started straight, and then very rapidly they started veering to the right or to the left, and they would walk literally in very tight circles sometimes, only maybe 20 yards, uh, 20 yards across. So they, were, they thought they were walking a straight line. They thought they were heading in one direction, but very quickly they drifted and were going in circles. And so they tried to figure out, is there anything else we can do to walk in a straight line, and nothing that they could figure out helped them walk in a straight line. If you're blindfolded and you can't really hear, you are going to walk in circles. Now, scientists have studied this phenomenon, trying to figure out why can't we walk in a straight line. Even if you're not blindfolded, even if you're walking through, say, a forest and you, you don't have any points of reference, or you're walking in fog and you don't have any points of reference, you are going to walk in circles. And what is very interesting is that scientists have studied this, but they have not come up with a definite reason as to why we're incapable of walking in a straight line. Their theory is that there is a compounding of issues. Perhaps one leg is slightly shorter than the other. The undulation of the ground makes it very difficult to walk straight. Maybe their shoes are not perfect. All of these things make walking in a straight line almost impossible. Now, what's very interesting is that they believe there's a whole nother element at play here. See, humans are fluid 
liquid creatures. Our bodies are made up of mostly water. Therefore, our movements are fluid in nature. We are not predictable in our movements. We're not mechanical, if you will, in our movements. That's why scientists who are trying to develop exoskeletons, you know, things that you'd wear around your body to help you pick up heavier objects, they're having a very difficult time manufacturing these because as humans, our, our movements are not the same and they're very unpredictable. As a result, every World Ranger, right? Shout out to the World Rangers. There's, woo, was there any World Rangers in the room or am I the only one when you're a little guy? Any World Rangers? All right, there's a few of us. All right, any Boy Scouts? Yeah, okay, there we go, a few Boy Scouts. Uh, like any, like, uh, yeah, old, there you go, that works. <laughs> when you're kids, when you're a World Ranger, right, you understand that if you're going to go on a hike, that you need to take some tools along with you to make sure that you walk in a straight line. You need to have some things to help you navigate. You need to have a map. You need to have a compass. You need to have waypoints. You need to have something to shoot for. You need to have some visual aids so that you do not walk in a circle. And not only do you need that map, that compass, and that visual aid, but then you need to actually use them. And you need to check them often or you're going to drift off course on a long distance hike you have to constantly stop and check the map and then you have to get your compass bearings and you have to make sure that you're aiming at the same point of reference every time or you're going to completely drift and miss your intended target your intended destination now it doesn't take very much to be off very significantly if you're walking 20 miles you only have to be a degree or two off of your heading to miss your intended destination by a lot. Literally, every form of navigation requires you to constantly check your compass and your map to make sure you get where you want to go. Even sailors on the high sea before GPS had to navigate by the stars because the wind and the waves would knock them off course and they would drift from where they want to go. And here's the point of all this. This is exactly the what happens inside of our marriages. From time to time, our marriages are going to drift. There is a plague, if you will, that affects every single marriage in this room from time to time. And almost every single marriage is going to come to different points where you realize, hey, I think we're heading in a different direction than what we intended to head in the beginning. I think that we have drifted a little bit. And if we're not careful, by nature itself, we're going to drift off course and our marriages are going to end up going in circles. Let me show you what I mean by this. Before we start uh, with marriage, we start out in the dating world, right? And when you're dating, and particularly if you're a young person, people are constantly throwing advice at you. As a youth pastor, I did this all the time. We, we gave the teenagers dating advice on how to honor God and how to navigate relationships. And that's what we do. We tell people, we encourage them, we build them up so that they have some sort of idea of what they're doing. They have some references, if you will, to make sure that they go in a straight line. And then one day, this person and you and I, we met or meet Mr. and Mrs. Wright. This is the person that we want to spend the rest of our life with, so we pop the question, hopefully romantic. I did it at Pizza Hut, if you did not know that. There's a video on YouTube. It was very embarrassing looking back on it. Don't do that. But we pop the question. She said yes, so it worked out, right? We pop the question. We decide on the wedding day. We go to the preacher and we say, will you marry us? And the preacher most of the time says, yes, I will, but you have to go through premarital counseling. So here we go again. We get a whole nother round of advice of everything that you should do going into your marriage. And so our goals, we have our destination, we know what we want to do, and we start heading that direction. So we have figured all of this out as a couple. Every stage of life has had different advice, different waypoints, different guidance to help us walk in the same direction. So now this couple starts out at this point, and they've done a lot of prep work. They have prepared personally. They have prepared as a couple. They are ready to get married, and they're ready to head out on this adventure of life. And the destination for most couples is happily ever after, whatever that looks like for you. 
Every couple wants to end up at a happily ever after destination. I've never heard a man say on his wedding day, I hope that we are married and then get divorced in 10 years so we can split half the assets. That is not something that we start out with, but yet a lot of us end up there. I've never heard a woman say, I hope to get married so that we can never communicate, we can live our lives in silence, and he leaves his underwear on the floor, right? Like that's not the goal from day one. And yet, that's where a lot of us end up. Everyone gets married with this happily ever after game plan. We are starting towards the destination of happily ever after. But then the wedding day comes and goes. And then as a society, we've done all this prep work getting people ready for marriage. And then we get them married and we say, just figure it out on your own. Try to get there on your own. There's no advice at that point. We've helped them with the pre-dating, with the dating, and with the premarital counseling, but now they're left on their own ability to figure out how to navigate life and get to their own destination. However, for most of us, as we have experienced or witnessed, that doesn't really work out very well because we start out our marriages heading in one direction with dreams and aspirations and ambitions, and before long, we started to drift off of course. Before long, many marriages don't look like what we had hoped for. They don't feel like we had hoped that they would feel, and we're not accomplishing what we set out to do initially. There's disappointment, and there's frustration, there's unhappiness, and sometimes there's even tension inside of the marriage. Why? Because somewhere from the starting gate to here, we have drifted, and we're heading in a direction that we never wanted to go, and it has left us feeling frustrated in life. Why is that? There's a variety of reasons why we drift. The uncertainty of life. Lord knows that life throws things at us that we never intended for to experience or to face, and it can knock us off course a little bit. There are changes of life. There are the winds of busyness. There's the imperfection of two people living together now in matrimony. And then, of course, you add children to the mix, and it can become quite chaotic. All of those things can help us drift from the destination that we're aiming for. But I think the most important thing to notice is that there's a whole other reason why we drift in our marriage. And we drift a lot of times because we are fluid people. You're fluid. I'm fluid. My wife is fluid. Your spouse is fluid. Not only are there external forces that are trying to push you off track to happily ever after, quote unquote, but there's also constant internal realities as humans that we are fluid and that we are constantly changing in life. Our personalities change. Our wants and desires change. Our mindsets change. If you have been married any amount of time at all, chances are Neither one of you are the same person that you started out as when you got married. You're one person on your wedding day, but in five years, in seven, 10, 20, 30 years, you have changed as a person and your spouse has changed as well. And you are different people. And if you're not careful, as you change, you're going to start drifting apart from one another. Lewis Smead said this, you do not marry one man or woman, but many. And what that means is this, when you get married, you have to go into that expecting that your spouse is going to change. When you get married, you go into that expecting that you're going to change. And you're constantly going to have to work at bringing yourselves back into alignment where you're running the same way, where you're not drifting apart from one another. All that is to say this, we need to have this, just this reality in the forefront of our minds that sooner or later, all of us who are married are going to begin to drift even just a little bit. Now, we shouldn't be afraid of that. That is natural and that is normal. Just the circumstances of life, let alone the personal internal changes of life, should bring us an awareness that we are going to have to face this reality that If we don't stay constantly connected to one another, we're going to drift. However, if we're not careful to correct course, then we're going to end up in seasons that are dry. If we're not careful to correct course, we're going to end up in seasons that are tense and we don't know why. If we're not careful to correct course, we're going to end up in seasons we don't feel connected, where we're not accomplishing what God has laid on our heart. And frankly, we'll end up in seasons where we're just not happy in the marriage. Why? Because we have completely drifted apart. 
But here is the bottom line, and here's what I need you to pay attention to. I need you to, to catch this, if you will. If we don't take some bearings inside of our marriage, if we don't gain some understanding of where we are at and where we want to go, then you will end up somewhere you don't want to be. If you don't take some bearings of where you're at and figure out where you want to go in your marriage, you are going to end up somewhere you do not want to be. And countless marriages have ended up somewhere that they don't want to be because of the drift. Divorce court is not a destination that we want to aim for. Constant tension in the home is not a destination we want to be at. Just cohabitating is not the destination that we want to live in. So how do we avoid this drift? Or when we feel the drift starting in the normal, natural process of life, how do we, how do we correct course in marriage? You have to understand something. We talked about in land navigation, you've got to have a map and a compass. In marriage, your spouse is your compass to get you back on course, to figure out where you need to be. If you and your spouse are navigating life together, it's going to require you to communicate together in order to figure out where you want to go as a couple. I want to read to you two passages of scriptures, two proverbs that when you put them together are going to be a, a, a base camp, if you will. They're going to be the ground where we start at to understand how we avoid this drift. The first is this, Proverbs 18, 15. It says, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. I want to read that again. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Now, Proverbs 18.2, a few verses before, says this. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now, let's compare the contrast. This is a very interesting comparison of Scripture. And it basically says this. The intelligent acquire knowledge. And the wise ear seeks knowledge. The fool takes no pleasure in understanding. You only care about your own opinion. Notice the subtlety of this Proverbs. It says this, You cannot be wise without knowledge. Wisdom is rooted in knowledge. But you can't have knowledge without asking questions. Notice what the Proverbs says, The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Think about the implications of this Proverbs for our marriages. This means that if a, I'm a husband and I don't want to drift, then I have to be wise in my marriage, which is going to require me to ask a lot of questions because I need to have knowledge of my spouse. I need to have knowledge of where I need to go. And the only way I'm going to gain that knowledge is by asking questions. The only way I'm going to have wisdom when it comes to my marriage in regards to my wife is by seeking wisdom and knowledge from her. No other person can bring that to my life. Let's pretend I feel like I'm starting to drift, and I go to Jake, and I say, Jake, help me out. He's not going to give me the proper wisdom and give me the proper knowledge. Why? Because my wife is the barometer. She's the compass. She's the only one that I'm truly concerned about in this moment. Now, obviously, we can seek outside wisdom and counsel, but at the end of the day, what she said is the knowledge that I need to be wise in my marriage. She's the one that can provide wisdom so that I can know how to navigate this drift. Controversy to that is this. If I want to be foolish, all I have to do is live life the way I want to. Only worry about my opinion. Only worry about what I care about in the marriage. I never ask my wife what she thinks, what she feels, what she needs. I just constantly worry about my own opinion, my own desires, and I ignore what she's speaking into my life. So these two Proverbs kind of our bookends of how we can approach this drift. We can seek wisdom and knowledge from our spouse, or we can be foolish by doing our own thing. And it leads us to a very important truth. The only guarantee that you have to get where you want to go is by asking a lot of questions from your spouse and seeking understanding so that you can get where you need to go. That is the compass bearing to get you back on track. Now, the question then becomes, what questions should I be asking? If I want to seek wisdom and I want to seek knowledge from my spouse, what questions do I need to be asking of them? How do I make sure that when I feel the drift coming that I bring us back into alignment? 
Well, I have some questions that I want to, to give to you this morning, some questions that you need to have asked of by your spouse, where you guys sit down, I don't care if it's over dinner, I don't care if it's in the evening, and you ask these questions to each other, and you say, give me honest feedback. Now, here's the important thing to understand. When you ask these questions, you cannot get defensive at the answers. I'm just going to take a drink and let that one set in. The desire of asking questions is this, to get understanding. That's the point. Asking questions is not about building a case to prove how you're doing everything right. Asking questions is about hearing your spouse speak to you so that you can have the knowledge so that you can get back on course. I think it's also important to know that you should ask questions often. I don't think it matters if you've been married five days, five years, 50 years. You need to ask questions often to make sure that you and your spouse stay in alignment. Countless marriages have ended up in divorce court after the kids have graduated. Countless marriages have maybe cohabitated for the last 20, 30 years of that marriage. It's never too late to bring alignment to your marriage, and it's never too early to start making sure that you have alignment in your marriage. So if the marriage is good, ask the questions. If the marriage is bad, ask the questions. Now, I'd encourage you to write these questions down. Because I think I'm about to give you some good questions to ask. You can disagree with me afterwards. And if you do, don't tell me because I don't care anyways, all right? But here's the deal. <laughs> that was kind of mean, wasn't it? Lord, I apologize for that. That came across wrong. You should ask the questions constantly. And I'd encourage you to write these, these down. I'm going to give you about 10, 11 questions depending on how much time we have. I'm going to run through these very quickly so you need to be ready. And I've broken them down into categories. Are you ready? Maybe we should stretch. Okay, here we go. There are spiritual questions that you should ask your spouse. To avoid the drift, ask the question, how are we continually and practically making God the center of our marriages? How are we continually and practically making God the center of our marriages? This is not a theoretical question. This is an actual practical question. Why is this question important? Well, Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says this. So everyone who hears... These words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against the house and fell and great was the fall. This question is important because you need to understand as a couple that the storm of life is coming. It is coming. And you have built your life upon something that's stable or upon something that's faulty. And the only thing that is stable in this life is the Word of God. And when you have built your life upon the Word of God and you're letting God be the center of your marriage and you are practically and continually putting Him in the center of your marriage, Jesus' guarantee is that no matter what comes at you in life, you will be able to stand. You will be able to withstand the storm and the rains and the wind that comes against life. By the same token, he also gives us another guarantee. If you do not do these things, if God is not continually and practically the center of your life, when the wind and the rain comes, there is going to be a great devastation. There is going to be a fall. So what are you building your life upon? Now, you would think that this is a very simple question. You know, Austin, isn't this the token question that a preacher should ask, making sure that our marriages are built upon Jesus Christ? Well, you would think that it's a simple question. However, I truly believe that so many marriages in church are drifting and failing because God's not the foundation of that marriage. If God was the foundation and the source and you're living according to the word of God and you're praying, you're growing in Jesus and you're trusting and you're obeying him, what can destroy your marriage? The answer is literally nothing. That's what Jesus just told us. Therefore, if you're going to get the compass bearings on your marriage, it has to start with an honest evaluation. How are we continually and practically making God the center of our marriage? And I think that for most of us, we need to figure that out in a very practical sense. Very practically. We're not talking about having church service every night. I think you can do very simple things, just dedicating a say a prayer before you go to bed at night. A 30-second prayer at night before you fall asleep could save your marriage. Dedicate sharing what God has laid on your heart lately with your spouse. Make sure the slant of your heart is toward Jesus and honoring him with your time. Honor Christ with the posture of your heart, particularly in relation to your spouse. 
Next question that we should ask often is this. How are we creating space for our spouse to hear from God separately? How are we creating space for our our spouse to hear from God separately? Turn to your spouse and say, give me some space. Were you scared to do that? Let's try again. Turn to your spouse and say, give me some space. Give me some space. I'll say it from the platform. Why is this important? While Christ needs to be center of our marriage, we are still two individual people. And so when you get married, you have not lost your personal identity as much as you've gained additional identity from your spouse. Therefore, we still need personal time to connect with the Father God. It's vital for you to allow space for your spouse to connect with God because, and hear me very carefully, you are not God. If you do not allow space for your spouse to connect with God, sooner or later, there's going to be a spiritual drift in their life There's going to be a spiritual deficiency in their life, and they're going to look to you to fill that emotional and that spiritual need. And guess what? You won't be able to do that because you're not God. And then your spouse is going to get frustrated with you. So it's important to ask our spouses from time to time, Do you have the space and the time to connect with God? And how can I help guard that for you? Now, we're not talking about having hours on end. It's the simple things. Again, something simple and practical. That's why I try to get to the church early on in the mornings because it gives me some time to pray and read. That's why I get up early before Charity and Knox does. It gives me some time to pray and read. Why? I'm not taking time from the family. It's my time. You have to find that time and you have to protect that time for your spouse and for yourself. It doesn't have to be complicated as long as it's effective and efficient. Third question to ask is this, to avoid the drift, ask the question, how am I currently growing in Christ to be a blessing to my spouse? How am I growing in Christ to be a blessing to my spouse? Why is this important? Well, as Christians, our call to Jesus is in discipleship, which means I walk more like Jesus today than yesterday. The greatest gift that you can give your spouse is to be more like Jesus. Because the more like Jesus you are, the more loving you're going to be. The more like Jesus you are, the less selfish you're going to be. The more like Jesus you are, the more generous you're going to be with your words. The more you are like Jesus, the more you're going to be sensitive to the needs of the other person. And when two people are becoming more like Jesus and they're both reciprocating that towards each other, it fosters a healthy marital foundation. A healthy marriage always starts with a spiritually healthy you. Next set of questions that we need to ask are the the life questions, the life questions. To avoid the drift, ask the question, what dreams do you have that I can help you accomplish? You need to ask your spouse this question from time to time. You need to sit them down and say, what dreams do you have that I can help you accomplish? Turn to your spouse and say, start dreaming, baby. Start dreaming. You need to have big dreams. You need to have big dreams. This is something that Charity and I are actually working through right now. This is kind of fun. This is kind of new for both of us. In our previous ministry, Charity worked. She was at at school. She was a school teacher. It took up a large portion of her time. Now that we've moved and now we've gotten settled in, me and her started having this conversation a while back. Like, hey, what's my role now? What's the dream now? This has been kind of fun. I've enjoyed this conversation that we're having because it's allowing charity to dream and it's exciting because we don't know where that ends up. You need to turn to your spouse from time to time and say, what dreams do you have that I can champion help make become a reality? If you read Ephesians 2, and we reference that passage a lot here, you'll see that before the foundations of the world that Jesus laid out a plan for you. He created good works, and the Bible says that we should walk in them. And so God has created a work for you and your spouse to do together, but he's also placed individual desires and dreams inside of our hearts. And by asking this question to your spouse, you're serving and you're honoring your spouse as an individual who God has created them to be. 
Ladies, this is where you can really champion your husband. This is where you can make your husband feel like he can take on the world. Because many men have put dreams and ambitions on the back burner in order to financially support the family. And so by going to your husband and saying, honey, what dreams do you have that I can help facilitate in your life? You'll be like a shot of adrenaline into his arm. By the same token, husbands, this is the same thing that you can do to your wives because many ladies have put careers and dreams on the back burner in order to raise and rear children. But they have dreams, they have ambitions, they have desires that God has placed in their life. And so by asking them this question, you're facilitating an open door in their life and in your life to champion and honor your your wife. It's about love, honor, and mutual submission. And this question elevates the individual's worth inside of the marriage. Next question you should ask. To avoid the drift, ask the question, what is one thing that I can do to show you love and honor in a new or better way? What is one thing that I can do to show you love and honor in a new or better way? Why is this question important? Well, it's it's important on two levels. First, my responsibility as a husband is to love my wife in a manner in which she receives love. I'm a big proponent of the book, The Five Love Languages by Dr. Uh, Gary Chapman. If you don't know about that book, look into that book. It's older, but it's fantastic. And it's just a simple way of understanding how men and women are hardwired. It's just a way of understanding how people think and how you think, and it gives words to what we already understand to be true. It just frames it in such a way that we can understand it. I would encourage you to read it. But in that book, basically, uh, Dr. Chapman makes the argument that men and women show love and receive love in one of five ways, words of affirmation, giving of gifts, spending time together, acts of service, and or physical touch. And so what it means is you tend to love people in one manner, right? Perhaps you like serving people. That's how you show people you love them. But maybe you receive love by words of affirmation. When somebody says, man, you did a good job. You're so, you're so awesome. It just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You're like, yay. Maybe you feel good. Well, the same thing applies inside of your marriage. And so what this means is if I'm going to show love to charity, I need to figure out how she receives love and I need to reciprocate that to her. For example, charity's love language for a long time was spending time together. So if I was carving out time to be with her at home that communicated to her that I loved and cared for her, I could buy her 100 gifts. But if I was never at home, she was going to have a love deficiency in her life. So our marriage would start to drift. So when I ask the question, how can I show you love and honor in a new or better way, what I'm asking for is direction so that I can love them the way that God created them. However, it's also important to know that we change. We talked about this a moment ago. We're fluid. What's interesting is Charity and I took that test the other day for something else, and we figured out her love language changed. She's different now than she used to be. She likes experiences now. She likes going and doing things and acts of service. That changed inside of her life. And so I can either keep loving her the way she used to feel it all the time, and there's going to be a drift, or I can change. It requires me to change. So when you ask this question of your spouse, it gives them permission to speak in your life. To avoid the drift, you need to ask the question. This is a very important question. Where are we vulnerable right now? This is perhaps the most important question we can ask because 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The enemy is looking to destroy your marriage. This is very important to understand. We need to ask this question of ourselves often. Where are we vulnerable in our marriage? Where's the weak spot? Where could the enemy curl his way in? We need to be aware of that because if we don't know where that is, the enemy is going to weasel his way into our life and we're going to have a real problem. I'm listening to this fascinating, all the staff is going to roll their eyes when I say this. I'm listening to this fascinating podcast on World War I right now. And if you know anything about history, you know anything about World War I, what ended up ultimately happening was this gridlock known as trench warfare. Literally for uh, over a year, these people were dug into the ground, and on the Western Front, the, the battle line never moved. People were dying. There was, it was just absolutely atrocious slaughter of human life, and yet no one moved. It basically, for all practical purposes, stayed exactly where it was. Why? Because these people have figured out how to make such good defenses that nothing could get through. And in the context of human warfare, it's a terrible thing. 
But in the context of our marriage, that's exactly the type of attitude we need to have. We need to have an attitude with our spouse that we're going to dig in, we're going to have a trench here, and nothing's going to get past us. We're not going to have a break in our line because the goal of warfare is to try to break through the line because if I can separate my enemy, then I can start picking them off one side after the other. I'm at their flank. I'm at their, at their liver, so to speak. I can get at them. So that's exactly what the enemy's trying to do for you and your spouse. You need to be together and say, where are we vulnerable at right now? Where's the trench need to be dug a little deep? Where do we need to, you know, to sure up our fortifications so that the enemy cannot come in between us? Perhaps you've been really busy lately. Perhaps there's a lot going on in life. Perhaps there's some tension at home. Perhaps, you know, the kids are getting a little older. And there's, what is it that you're, is creating some vulnerability in your life? Make sure that you take care of it. You need to ask the question. This is a fun question. This is a question you should ask. When was the last time we tried something new as a couple? This is perhaps my favorite question of this entire, marriage, uh, entire message. Why is this question important? Because new adventures create new memories that create stronger connections. New adventures create new memories that create stronger connections. The natural progression of all relationships is to a point of stagnation. And that's no fun. Stagnation and marriage equals, dare I say, death of that marriage. Routine is the enemy of excitement. That's a hard thing for me to say because I love routine. Man, I love routine. I can do the same thing every morning till the day I die and just be happy as a clam, right? I love routine. But routine inside of your marriage is a terrible thing sometimes. There's some things that need to be routine, and there's some things that don't. Charity and I, over the last four or five years, have been trying to be more adventurous, trying to do new things, go new places, take trips together. We never did that in the beginning of our marriage. The first five years, we just had a routine. And then, you know, I had an epiphany, I had a wake-up call, God started dealing with my heart. We started doing some things, started going on trips together, started having fun. And you know what? The last six, seven years of our marriage have been way better than the first four or five. Why? Because we're trying new things, we're creating new memories, and it's been fun. Be adventurous. Be adventurous. Husbands, that means sometimes you have to do things that don't exactly sound exciting on the front end. You know what I did a while back? It was terrible. I went to a painting class. Good Lord. <laughs> it was kind of ironic, too, because it turned out to be one of those wine drinking and painting things. I didn't know that when we signed up for it. I mean, people all around us are getting hammered. We're not. We didn't, I promise. We didn't drink. People are passing out in their seats, and the guys out there painting. And I painted, to let you know, gentlemen, I painted the best-looking flower in a vase you'd ever seen, okay? <laughs> well, we did that. Never thought I'd do that. You know what Charity does, though? She has never shot a firearm in her life, and she goes to the gun range with me all the time. And I have a video. She's hitting five out of five, about eight-inch steel plates at 20 yards. Come on, somebody. Why? Because we're trying things, and it's fun. It creates adventures. You need to say, what adventure do we need to go on? I'm not talking about spending $20,000 to roam the world. Figure out what you can do. All of us can live within our means and create an adventure together, create new memories. Ask the question, are we creating time every day to connect? I know that sounds like an odd question, especially when you're a guy. But here's the thing you need to understand. You two are living together. So you can either make it a joy or you can cohabitate. Cohabitation is not fun. You didn't get married to have a roommate. You got married to have a spouse. And so that requires you to communicate and create time of connection. You need to look for that. Next group of questions we need to ask, and we'll move very quickly. And you're like, he's already said that like three times. I'm being real this time. I lied all the other times. Now I'm going to go fast. <laughs> all right. You need to ask the family questions. To avoid the drift, ask the question, are we creating enough time away from the kids? little heathens. <laughs> Why is this question important? The reality is your kids are home for a season. Your spouse is supposed to be home for a lifetime. In Genesis 2 and 24, it talks about how a man was to leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave, be united to his wife. But Proverbs 26.6 6 says, train up in a child in a way that he should go Proverbs 127, verse 4 says, say, to that, uh, say that a child is arrows in the hands of a warrior, meaning everything in Scripture points that I'm to be drawing closer to my spouse, and everything in Scripture says I should be training up my child to give them the old boot out the door, okay? 
So your kids are going to be home for hopefully 18 to 20 years. And your spouse is supposed to be there till the day that you go to be with Jesus. Right? There's a big dispersity of time. And the rate that most of us live, you're talking 50 years of marriage, 20 years of child rearing. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us would put way too much focus on the 20 and not enough on the 50. And so we need to make sure that we're creating time where we're away from our children so that we have something to go home to when the kids are gone. Now, please hear me on this. As a youth pastor, I can attest to this. The greatest gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. We feel like we're taking time away from the kids. I promise you, I promise you, as a youth pastor, I watch this enough, the greatest gift you will ever give your children is a healthy marriage. You can find a fun babysitter. They won't know that you're gone for a few hours. But I promise you this, if you avoid those times and you don't take those times, they're going to know when they're going to mom's house for Christmas and dad's house for Christmas and all those things. Have a healthy marriage for your kids. The last group of questions you need to ask is this, the intimacy questions. The intimacy questions. Now, we're going to have to be careful, obviously, because of the context that we're in. You can read between the lines because you're smart. To navigate the drift of life, you need to ask yourself, are we both fulfilled in our intimate life? Why is this question important? Intimacy inside of marriage is not the end-all, be-all of marriage. However, intimacy inside of marriage is, as I've said many times, the one thing that is supposed to separate your relationship with your spouse from every other relationship inside of your life. I want you to think about the significance of that. We are now in a culture that says sex has no real significance. It's just a social transaction. That's what the culture says to you. The problem is, is that the Me Too movement is also gaining a lot of steam, which tells us the culture has no idea what they're talking about. They say it's just a social interaction until someone's violated. Then they understand the depths and the pain and the hurt that can happen when intimacy is violated. Here's what God's Word says, is that intimacy was only supposed to happen inside of marriage to bring beauty and life to that marriage. Intimacy is the thing that God gave your marriage to bring life, beauty, and fruit. Intimacy isn't the end-all, be-all, but it's been my observation that intimacy is a good barometer for a healthy marriage. When intimacy is good, chances are the rest of the marriage is probably good. When intimacy is bad, chances are something else is often in the marriage. And so we must make note that intimacy is not only about the physical. When you look at Scripture, and we don't have time to get into it, there's a, there's a spiritual and there's an emotional reality. So when we only focus on the physical side of intimacy, we're not being healthy inside of our marriages. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, 1 through 5, gives us a lot of insight into this. It says, Now concerning the matters which I wrote to you, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's a quotation. They're asking him a question. Here's the response that Paul gives. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should not give to... Uh, should give to his wife conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does so do not deprive one another except perhaps uh, in agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control and what Paul's basically saying is say look intimacy inside of marriage is about mutual submission. When you get married, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It says that when a woman gets married, her body doesn't belong to her anymore. And then he says, and if you're a man, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to your spouse. There's supposed to be mutual submission. There's supposed to be intimacy. There's supposed to be love there. And so there needs to be conversations. Are we fulfilled in our intimate life? That's a conversation you initiate because when you stood at an altar and you said, till death does us part, what you were saying is, I'm giving up a lot of myself, including this. And so my responsibility as a husband and as a wife is to make sure that there's intimacy inside of this marriage and we need to talk about this often. Now, for a lot of people, this makes them uncomfortable. Can we talk about this? Absolutely, you can and you should. You should have those conversations. Why? Because the scripture makes it very clear in this passage we just read. The enemy is going to try to bring temptation to your life. And most of us aren't very self-controlled. You know how I know that? Because there's donuts back there. And we're all like, well, I probably shouldn't have one. Here we go. I want to have one anyways. Self-control is not something that comes natural for a lot of us. 
So we need to guard ourselves. We need to guard our intimate lives because that's the gift that God gave us. And we need to make sure and communicate that satisfaction is there. Last question I want to ask is this. To avoid the drift, we need to ask, how can we cultivate excitement and true intimacy? In marriage, intimacy should be familiar, it should be comfortable, and it should be fresh. On one hand, there should be some routine to the intimate relationship. On the other hand, there shouldn't be any routine to it at all. Intimacy inside of marriage should be familiar. It shouldn't be a surprise, but it should be fresh. When you're actually cultivating true intimacy inside of your marriage, I promise you that every other aspect of your life is going to be affected. And if this is the one thing that God gave you as a gift to separate your marriage from every other relationship, then it should require us to put in some effort into that relationship. So how do we cultivate this excitement? How do we cultivate the new level of intimacy? Men, you need to ask yourself the question, how can I connect with my wife on an emotional level? That's not natural for us as men. But that's what's natural for our wife. And so if we want to serve her, we ask, how can I create an environment that I can connect to my wife emotionally? Serving her creates intimacy with her. Women ask the question, how can I connect with my husband on a physical level? Women, we need to, you need to ask yourselves, how can I interact with my husband, create anticipation in his life? I promise if both husband and wife are asking those questions, be mutually serving one another. I want to close with this if Michaela wants to come back. Navigating the terrain of life with your spouse is one of the most important things that you will ever do in life. You don't want to drift. You don't want to drift. You don't want to wake up in 10 years not knowing who your spouse is. You don't want to wake up in 10 years not accomplishing the things in your marriage that you set out to accomplish. You don't want to wake up in 10 years somewhere that you don't want to be. You have to constantly be getting your bearings, asking your spouse a question, asking which way we need to go, and you need to constantly be correcting course. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, I feel like it's too late. I feel like we've drifted so far off course that I'm not sure that we can fix this and get this right. The beautiful thing about navigation is this. Let's pretend that we had a map. Let's pretend you just picked somebody up and you put them in a whole other state that they were not familiar with, and they're in that, in that state. Let's say, let's go to Nebraska. Why not? So in the Cornhuster state, there's nothing there, and you're dropped in the middle of nowhere, and if you've ever been to Nebraska, there's not a whole lot of visual references, right? And you're stuck there, but you have a map and a compass. Those things are pretty worthless to you at that point because you got to know where you are at in order to know where you want to go. Because you look at the state of Nebraska on a map and say, well, this is good, but I don't know where I'm at, so I don't even know where to start. You might have all the tools there, but you don't even know where to start. But here's the point. If you can figure out where you're at, you can always figure out a path to get where you need to go. So maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I feel like our marriage has drifted so far off track. I don't know if it's fixable. Listen, if you can figure out where you're at today, even if it's a terrible spot, you can always correct and lie on a new course to go a new direction. Maybe your spot is this is atrociously bad. This is the worst. We don't talk. We don't communicate. We don't even really like each other. We're in that cohabitating spot but at least you know where you're at. And if you know where you're at, you can know what you have to do to get where you need to go. So the point is this, is that it is never, ever, ever too late. It's never too late for any marriage. You can always get where you need to go. Perhaps you've been married for a while and you say, you know what, we started out, we had a lot of dreams and ambitions, but that's, we're just not seeing the results of what we wanted to start with. You know what? It's not too late because you know right where you're at. You can ask these questions. You can correct course. You can avoid the drift and you can get back in alignment. The only thing that's keeping you from getting where you want to go is answering this question. Will I put in the effort that is required? 
If you put in the effort that's required and you're willing to ask the questions, I promise you that any marriage can end up at the place where they want to be. They just have to ask those questions. The question is, will you do that? Will you please stand with me this morning as you stand? I just want to talk to you for just a few moments. I truly believe that the enemy is absolutely out to sabotage the family unit in our culture. You can see that play out. But I want to tell you this, no matter what mistakes or what has happened in the past, God is always big enough to make things right. God is always big enough to heal, to restore, to bring things back into alignment. And you can do that today. So here's what I want to do today. Today, I want to pray for the marriages in this room. I want to pray for the marriages in this room. It's time that the enemy stops taking attack on our families. And we stand up to that. We resist that. And we overcome that so we can have healthy marriages. We can have healthy families. We can have healthy communities in our church. So here's what I want to do today. I want to invite you and your spouse to come down to this front, to the altar. And I want you just to stand there with your spouse, hand to hand, hold shoulder, whatever you want to do. But I want to invite spouses to come this morning. Charity's going to join me on the platform. But if you would, as many that would, step out and say, you know what? I want to go with my spouse. And we're going to have a moment just between us and our spouses. So I want everybody to start moving, kind of get down here a little bit. And we're going to pray for each other this morning. We're going to pray over each other. We're going to commit again to one another to say, you know what? I'm in this thing with you. I chose you. I'm with you. And I'm not going to leave you. We're going to work on this. We're going to fight this. We're going to be cramped. We're going to get down here. But this morning, we're going to pray over our marriages. We're going to pray that the Lord would just watch over us. We're going to pray that we learn how to love each other and honor each other in a deeper way. We're going to pray for fresh adventures. We're going to pray that we know how to communicate and show love to one another. We're going to pray that we find our vulnerable spots and we overcome those and we don't allow the enemy to sabotage us. So I want to pray for you this morning and then I'm going to shut my microphone off and I want husbands to pray over their wives. This morning I want you to pray. You can whisper in their ear, you don't have to be loud, but I want you to pray over your wife this morning. And I want you to pray for your relationship. I want you to pray for your marriage. I want you to pray for your families. Let's be male leaders. Let's be men who watch over our families. Let's be spiritual leaders in this moment over our spouses.